0: What's up? Welcome to Star Mindsets episode 32. Today we were talking to Meredith Whipple Callahan. She is a lot of things, but recently she is a partner at Evolution, which I'm sure she'll explain it to the greater depth as soon as we get her online. And also she is a two-time author, the author of a book, um, two books called Indispensable. The second one is The Intentional Life. Outside of that, I do know that Meredith has an MBA from Stanford and um, has worked at Bridgewater Associates and in vain, but I, there's, there's more to the story here. So yeah, passing it to Earl. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: And uh, just for the audience, you know, um, you know, when Dan and I were thinking about, you know, how do we get an episode specific to leadership? Um, I, I just thought about one person and it was Meredith. Um, so, you know, when Dan said, how who do we talk to someone that, that has written books? and also knows leadership. Uh, there's only one person that, that I thought of. And you know, Meredith and I know each other from our Stanford Business School days. And it's just so amazing on her journey towards uh, her she herself being a leader and now actually coaching leaders throughout their journey. So welcome to our episode, Meredith.
2: Thank you both. I appreciate it, Dan and Earl.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's so many ways we could start, but I think just the best one is, uh, can you tell us about evolution and, and the work that you do there?
2: Yeah, so talking about evolution is actually a good segue off of your questions around <laughs> and your allusion to leadership because uh, evolution is a firm of you know people who are executive coaches and organizational consultants and facilitators who are all committed to raising the consciousness in business by really supporting the evolution of individuals teams and systems and organizations. And so um, so the work that I do there is a mix of executive coaching team facilitation and then consultative work where we're really trying to do that to raise consciousness and impact the world through impacting organizations.
0: For sure. And I, I don't know if too many people are familiar with like a, an executive coach. Like what, what what does that mean? Is that like sort of like mindset coaching? Is that like, uh, like looking at like how to inform their decisions? Is, is that in that range or is it completely um, something else?
2: Yes, executive coaching is a form of individual one-on-one support, typically for executives, but applicable in many ways for all sorts of different people. And what it does is really focus on two things. You mentioned mindsets and it focuses on not only mindsets, but also behaviors, because we know that mindset and your internal state and then behavior and your external action are two things that play together to really inform how you're acting in the world and how you're being as a leader. And what executive coaching does is create a space that supports two things. One, it supports reflection, and two, it supports action. So if you think about the way humans evolve, including people who are in a leadership role, it's typically in a dialogue between things that you do and then your reflection on those things. So executive coaching creates a container where you can talk to somebody else, someone who knows a lot about human development, someone who has pattern recognition around how executives operate, someone who deeply knows the organizational context in order to really reflect on what am I doing and what am I learning from that? And then what's the next action that I want to commit to to move me towards my goals? And that's, a, that's kind of the shorthand for how you think about executive coaching, supporting leaders in, uh, in their evolution as people and as people leaders.
1: Yeah, I guess, Meredith, uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, folks are really curious. Why would someone need a coach, especially leaders, right? You would think that they're already in a high pinnacle of like knowing kind of themselves. That's why they went and became a leader. Is it because they have a career crisis uh, or whatnot, or, or it's kind of an accelerator? Like wh- wh- when is that point that someone says, oh, actually, I-, I need a coach um, because this is kind of we hear about it, but we don't know exactly, like, when is it the right time for an individual to to ask that uh, for, for themselves.
2: Yeah, Earl, there's a really interesting embedded assumption, <laughs> what you just said, of leaders know things. Leaders are self-aware. <laughs> leaders have done a bunch of work already. And often the the skills, the capabilities, the way of being that people are promoted for, the things that actually get them promoted into leadership positions are actually quite different from many of the things that you said. Sometimes they're the same, but often they're quite different. Sometimes there's not actually a huge burden of bringing self-awareness or leading people in an elegant and thoughtful way um, that's required before you're actually in those positions and doing it yourself, right? Some some organizations promote more based on um sales or revenue targets or something completely different, right? Um, And not that those don't take self-awareness too. They all do. But um, evolving as a person and evolving as a leader is, first of all, a continuous process. Second one, which is not necessarily, like I said, intimately tied to the things that actually get you promoted. But third, really important, especially as you take on... Um, more responsibility for yourself and other people. And so the way to think about executive coaching is executive coaching is just one form of supporting human adult development, which is that, like I said, we know that people evolve naturally through a dialogue between action and reflection in their lives. The way that you think about executive coaching is that it supports that dialogue between action and reflection. It accelerates the dialogue. It allows you to compound learnings more quickly and actually evolve more quickly as a leader, rather than what you might naturally do in your everyday life. In a lot of ways, we're, we're all continuously evolving, right? We're all becoming becoming a different version of ourselves based on the challenges that we face every day and the way that we process through and attack those challenges. What coaching brings is a consciousness to that process, a consciousness to the choices that you're making, a consciousness to what you're learning, an ability to compound, like I said, compound those learnings faster because you're applying consciousness and bringing your learnings to a different level of depth. And so to go back to your question of when is executive coaching appropriate? When is it applicable? It's appropriate when you're facing, disproportionately when you're facing something that you don't know how to deal with, when you're navigating through a new moment, it could be a new role, it could be a different level of performance, it could be a particular challenge or struggle that's coming up in some capacity. Um, But when you're at that moment, when you say consciously navigating through this, Is something that's either needed by my external environment or I know internally that I will be more effective and learn and evolve more quickly because I'm being conscious of that. So I have people who, you know, come to coaching for a particular, you know, reason or season. I also have people who come to coaching just because they know they want to be consciously in the fight of becoming better and evolving as a person all the time.
0: Wow! Yeah, yeah, I I can tell how um that's that's applicable. And you know, I was listening to your audiobook uh yesterday and seeing about you know the intentional life, and that's kind of how it plays into your current uh, work, right? Like coaching and trying to make executives uh you know maybe more intentional, just to have you know more confidence behind their actions. I can totally tell that it, it really ties in. Um, but uh, just backtracking a little bit here. Um, so you went to Yale and graduated with a religious studies uh, major, right? And um, I just wanted to ask you about that since there are so so few uh, religious, um, I guess, major or people with a religious degree nowadays. And and just wanted to ask about mm-hmm. what kind of like inspired that academic route initially. Um, myself, I, I kind of do come from like that religious background, not, not too far off, but not 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 a major right (laughs) and um yeah let's just talk about that and then maybe how that sparked your interest to be a consultant and everything else right
2: when i went to yale my parents gave me the direction that um any liberal arts degree would be equally useful and equally useless meaning equally (laughs) useful in making you a well-rounded thinking human being Uh, exposed to different types of thinking, exposed to different methodologies, right? Equally useful, essentially, in the course of your uh, development into being a human and adult. And equally useless in terms of none will necessarily uh, advantage you in finding a career, right? Whether you're walking into the career office with an English degree or a history degree, unless you want to do something that's intimately related to those, the likelihood is, is that the skills that you will build are those of critical thinking rather than anything particularly contentful. And so there's something lovely in that for me that it really gave me the freedom to choose the content that felt most aligned. The thing that I felt like I was most deeply drawn to and that had been and continues to be uh, via a lot of the core questions of religion. You know, to me, there's something actually very intimate between the study of religion and the study of culture in organizations and also the study of leadership in organizations. Because the core questions of religion underneath a lot of it are really how do we act? What are our values? What's important to us? Uh, how do we find depth in meaning in our everyday life? Uh, and those are the questions in a lot of ways that leadership qu- leadership proposes to um, posit as well. What's my purpose as a leader? What are my values? How do I make decisions? How do I think about connecting to deeper purpose and meaning in the course of the work that I do? Um, and as you start to expand leadership beyond self-awareness into how do I think about managing other people, um, in a lot of ways, those are the concentric circles that come around those things of how, how are we in relationship with each other? What are the things that we collectively value? What are the ways that are you know, right and good ways to treat people? Those are, those are intimately the questions of religion. And so um, the questions that religion proposes to answer in a certain way were always the questions that emerged to me as I started to get into leadership development and into this For work sure. as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so fascinating. And uh, I mean, after that, it seems like you went to Bain and company, right. Which is a major consulting firm. Was that jump um, difficult for you? Just, I mean, not necessarily, you know, I I'm sure that a lot of consultants say they major in finance or like uh, management or things like that. Right. Like, but you have such a unique background coming from uh, the liberal arts world. Did that, how did that jump? I guess, just how was that jump? you know, getting, getting into Bain and, uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe it's uncommon for, for uh, that route to be taken.
2: I can't speak of what it's like now, but at least at the yeah. time, it was probably more common than you think. There's uh-huh. a certain recruiting philosophy, especially amongst um, consultants, or there was at that time, at that strategy consulting firms, that you could take a smart, motivated person and teach them a lot of the content that they needed to know. Especially because if you look at a lot of the Ivy League schools, there aren't programs that are explicitly pre-business or pre-medical, right? So there's, there's not necessarily a track aside from, as you said, economics, um, there's not necessarily a track which would clearly put you on the track to be in business. And so people are coming with a lot of diverse experiences, a lot of diverse skill sets. And if you can kind of find a smart person with a you know analytical problem-solving mind, you can teach that person Excel, and you can teach that person PowerPoint, and you can teach that person uh, the finer points of synthesizing a, an executive summary about a business problem, even if they walk in with a pretty generalist skill set. And that's really what I did. right? I walked in with a skill set rooted in religious studies, but really I had the capability to think about problems critically, to break them down, to apply different methodologies to them and to try and uh, solve a problem. And so it was actually more, um, more compatible. Yes. I was the only religious studies major in my class, but at the same time it was more compatible than you might think. And, um, and also less rare than you might think. Oh, cool. But um, but there was still, for me, I, I will say all of that and then say at the same time, uh, I walked into my my first role at Bain with an incredible amount of humility. I didn't have anything that looked remotely like a finance degree, and I had no finance classes on my resume. And so I really walked in with the humility, which I think was in my service, to say, I know that I know nothing. I know that I can think, I know that I can learn. But I know that this content, this way of being, this approach, uh, not only being a strategy consultant, but also just being a professional in the world were things that I, I didn't delude myself that I knew anything about. Um, and there was something about taking a stance of deep, deep humility, especially early in my career, which I think was, um, was very helpful, actually, to get people to uh, support and help me and for me to be able to quickly learn and get up to speed instead of, uh, yeah, you know, pretending that I knew something walking in the door.
0: That's pretty awesome. Um, you spent a decade at Bain & Company, right? Or something like that? Close to a decade, maybe more? Yeah, so
2: I I spent a bit more than a decade, probably a, a decade if you uh, take out my time spent at business school in the middle of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. And then um, I also guess realized that you wrote a book, um, or you were, you, you, you became an author, I guess, pre, or you were trying to be an author pre business school, but then it just happened, uh, all of a sudden, uh, before getting into stuff related to your books and, and, uh, your author career, um, uh, can you tell me like what kind of inspired you to go to Stanford business school? I mean, was it always a goal after Yale or did you, yeah, yeah. Like what, what kind of, flip the switch in your head
2: you know I graduated as a religious studies major as we talked about I joined Bain and really learned uh kind of like learned a lot about business and oriented to the professional world but it was never my intention to necessarily uh be a consultant it was never my intention certainly <laughs> not my intention when I was in undergrad to ever go to business school uh but instead, it was a natural outgrowth of my path and evolution. So there was a lot that I learned being at Bain. Um, some of those things were about the dimensions of organizational life that I was more interested in uh, around leadership, around management, around interpersonal dynamics. And with that orientation and also just the general sense that I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted to learn more and have the opportunity to kind of season into more learning in my life. Um collectively that meant that getting an MBA made more sense than getting a different type of professional or academic degree. And so, um, and so that was the path that I chose and was lucky enough to end up at Stanford. And I think Stanford in particular was a good fit for me because those dimensions that I talked about in leadership around intrapersonal reflection and interpersonal interactions really are ones which I think are well served by the Stanford curriculum and the Stanford culture. And so Yeah, I was, um, I think I came out of Stanford even more oriented to seeing and connecting the dots between the parts of spirituality and religion that were important to me and why that resonated with me and the parts of organizational life that felt resonant with that as well.
0: For sure. Yeah, yeah. Just getting into, I guess, religion by, if you don't mind me asking, what uh, religion do you practice or did you end up uh, growing up
2: in? Oh, Dan, you're asking such a... is that rich true? questions. You uh, so? <laughs> the writing Well, yeah, the writing exercise that I'm undergoing right now is that of writing my spiritual autobiography. Um, and so there's a version of your question which is answered in 100 pages of manuscript, which oh, is shit. on my computer <laughs> right now, wow. um, which, feels, which feels hard to synthesize in the moment. But, uh, but I can give you a quick answer, which is that I was raised Episcopal, which oh, okay. is um, you know, a broadly theologically liberal uh, ritualistically, uh, kind of like conservative or, uh, traditional form of Christianity. And I practiced that through high school and through college. Um, and then in college, like a lot of people, you know, I had a kind of an existential moment and more of an opening as, as we often do both when we're in college and defining ourselves, but also as we transition from childhood into adulthood of really asking why these formats and why the set of beliefs um, that I was born into and given um, are yeah, here yeah. for me? Are they actually the ones that I ascribe to personally, or not? And so, in that you know differentiation into first adulthood, I adopted a much more, um, a much more kind of like broad based, diffuse spirituality, which didn't necessarily look Christian. Uh-huh. And that's persisted with me through most of adulthood that, um, there's almost a think you know, uh, syncretic like, uh, combina- combinatory approach to bringing together pieces of, um, pieces of Buddhism, which is where my meditation practices really, really okay. grounded pieces of Hinduism, which, um, Hinduism and really, Himalayan spirituality, which come from my ashram and one of the places where my physical practices of spirituality are most grounded, but also bringing together pieces of Episcopalianism and then other pieces of contemplative traditions, um, which are most resonant for me. Particularly, I describe myself as a Jesuit fangirl because mm, okay. I, uh, I really love many of, the, many of the Catholic traditions, especially the contemplative Catholic traditions, um, bring in really incredible, both <laughs> rigor in their thinking around theology, and then embodied in contemplative practices, and um, and so the idea of being a contemplative in action, which I steal from the Jesuit tradition, sure. is also part of my inspiration. And then on top of all of that, you know, I the thing that I studied most when I was at Yale and in religious studies was ritual, and some of the deepest, richest ritual traditions um, are ones like Judaism, in which. The The religion is both uh, belief-based, but in, a, in an even richer way, in some cases, really practiced and ritual-based and community-based. And so a lot of that resonates with me as well. And to add to all of that, that I was a meaningful part of the Unitarian Universalist Church at some point in my 30s and did okay. uh, leadership programs and social justice programs through there, I mean, kind of put all of that in a big shaker. Um, add two ice cubes, like shake it up and pour it out and whatever you get on the other side is some version of kind of um, integrated, universalist, uh, slightly new agey spirituality, which runs really deep within me in a reflective tradition.
1: Wow. Yeah. And one thing that we, we, we realize, especially for, you know, founders and leaders themselves, you know, they're, they're highly reflective, right? Um, You know, uh, especially someone like you, right, I mean, there seems to be this process of always, like, looking out and looking in and have this feedback loop in a constant basis. Um, Mm -hmm. I I guess, uh, you know, kind of related to that, um, you know, we're all curious on on being an author because it also is a process of reflection and reflection where the output then is basically, you know, uh, prose, right? Uh, How is that transition from, you know, yourself, you know, being a leader and then eventually like having both the motivation, the discipline, and also, you know, the courage in order to kind of put pen and paper and say, this is something I want for the world.
2: Mm, So let's take your first point, which is that there's a, your observation around leaders being particularly reflective, uh, which I find to be true. It is, um, when I talk about my work as an executive coach and supporting the, the cycle of action and reflection, that's just supporting the cycle of what people are ideally doing anyway in terms of really, really consciously, intentionally reflecting on their values, reflecting on their decisions, reflecting on their actions, and then making a conscious choice of how to act in the world, gathering data and feedback of how that action goes, and then coming back and reflecting again. The best leaders that I see often use external structures to do that like an executive coach. The best leaders I see often also have their own internal structures of doing that, whether it's checking in with themselves on a weekly basis or journaling or they have a a running practice or they constantly, they use their time in the car when they're driving to work as a reflective time. They consciously design that time into their lives to be thoughtful and reflective in a complementary way to action, which the world often forces us into. So first of all, yes, I, I agree with your assessment that reflective capacity is a meaningful aspect of leadership. And then second, your question around how does that reflective capacity then transform and shift and morph into something else when you write? I can only speak from my own experience, which is first of all, writing nonfiction, which ranges from uh, narrative nonfiction to more conceptual nonfiction um, in the business and leadership and self-development spaces. Um, And then how does that show up for me? Well, for me, the reflective practice is the foundation of everything else. So my personal reflective practice and the work that I do in journaling is the content that ends up being Refined and shifted, and becomes more conceptually clear and often more universally applicable as I do my writing, right? So, everything for me starts with personal experience, the reflection on personal experience, the codification and universalization of what that personal experience is, and then the presentation of usually concepts embedded within personal experience that can be of service to others. That's usually how it goes for me. I have no idea how it goes for other people. I've never written fiction. (laughs) I think I'd be terrible at writing fiction. I can imagine that that fictional process might be totally different from what I just articulated, um, but mine is really grounded in that reflective process. And then you also uh, referred to courage in there and courage to write. And I find courage to be such a funny, um, such a funny thing, right? It's things that, Often are not particularly courageous to you, look courageous to other people, because courage is just our definition of what, um, there's something that seems hard or risky sure. to do, and it's just finding the inner resources to actually do the thing. And then different things look hard or risky to different ones of us. So uh, I can even tell it shifted in my experience that it seemed like I needed a lot of courage. It felt like a courageous act to publish my (laughs) first piece of writing online. And it no longer feels like a courageous act to publish my writing online. That that that, That, that is, um, that's shifted through my experience.
0: That's that's so fascinating. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, I was listening to the audio book yesterday and something that you wrote was emotions don't equal actions and, there's just so much that uh, that uh you know has got me thinking about um, why people and myself included uh, you know feel a certain way but then you know I what I've noticed is that emotions kind of equal paralysis for me or like mm. you know <laughs> it's, it's the wall, but sometimes they can be good and it's just so hard to manage that and, and think about that um, and I also love how you're you know incorporating religion and in business. I don't ever think that has ever come across my mind before with with any anything really um, it is pretty interesting uh, but you know getting into your book uh, can we talk
2: about yeah. sorry, can we talk about that before we get into okay sure yeah, yeah. there's a, um I was just going to propose there's a really useful framing that I've been talking about lately which I think helps frame this thing up that usually we feel like religion and business are different or separate or religion and spirit I'm sorry spirituality and business are separate because there's Certain questions or certain events or certain realms of life, which feel like they're associated with spirituality and certain ones that feel like they're associated with business, right? Like you go to work, and then you're in the realm of business. And then maybe (laughs) on the weekend, you go to a religious service, and then you're in the realm of religion. Um, And so they feel almost segregated in our lived experience. Or alternatively, like I'm thinking about the question of the economic system and that's a question of business, or I'm thinking about the question of what's the meaning of life and that's a question of spirituality. But in reality, that is a form of kind of, I call it um, perpendicular spirituality because it cuts, it cuts up the flow of life into different pieces. And really what I experience and what I see, what I see my clients, the opportunity that I see more broadly in the world is to live in a world of parallel spirituality and parallel spirituality is where the flow of life is going along. There's a current of that, which is related to your lived existence. And there's a current of that, which is related to spirituality, a current of that, which is spiritual in everything that you do. So there are spiritual dimensions of going to work on Monday morning and there's spiritual dimensions of thinking about the economic system, right? And there are spiritual dimensions of having dinner and spending time with your kids, or um, doing anything else, so that spirituality is not segregated away, um, you know, a separate pieces of life, but instead it's a dimension of everything, because there's a dimension of purpose in everything you do, there's a dimension of values, there's a dimension of reflection, there's a dimension of how you show up and how you treat other people, there's a dimension of what you're learning and how you're growing and evolving along your personal path, all of those are dimensions of spirituality, and they're in everything, if you simply look to that level of your experience versus waiting for, you know, the 30 minutes that you go and have a mountaintop peak experience and you feel like you're uh, in dialogue with the divine, right? So there's that constant undercurrent, which is always here. And that to me is the more um, subtle, but more true way that things like spirituality and business intersect. Is that there is a spiritual dimension of sitting at a board meeting, and there's a spiritual dimension of how you show up there, what you're struggling with, how you treat other people and the decisions that you make.
0: Do you, I guess this is an okay, interesting question, or something to talk think about would be, since work has just been a lot of Zoom meetings uh, for the past year, do you feel like spiritual manifestation or that connection is also present over uh, the camera? And uh, aside from, you know, uh, you know, physical interactions in that meeting room. What do you think there?
2: Totally. It's just uh it's uh, there's always an invitation to being reflective on how you want to show up. And part of what um part of what the shift to remote work has done, part of what the pandemic has done, part of what the coronavirus has done is disrupt our historical habits. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you go back to you were about to talk about the intentional life and you were going to talk about the intentionality in the book but but intentionality at this moment for not only organizations and systems, but for our society is so much more important. And there's so much more of an invitation to intentionality and to intentional choice because our historical patterns have been disrupted in meaningful ways. And so this is a moment actually where there's more opportunity for evolution, more opportunity for the manifestation of spirit and a new incarnation, a new evolution of how we are together as humans because our old patterns are (laughs) disrupted. And so if you think about what it means to show up on a Zoom versus walk into a meeting room, you go, hey, how, how are we have the question now of how do we create connection despite distance, which is just a version of the question of how do we create connection? Mm-hmm. And that's a human spiritual You're question right. of how do, how do we want to be together? And so as you sit around and think about like, oh, how are we going to design the Zoom meeting for our all hands meeting on Thursday? How will we create connection even though we're all on Zoom? that's an opportunity to be intentionally meaningfully different in alignment with different values than you were before. And so um, it's, it is not to me that things are fundamentally lost, but instead that the, um, the change or that coronavirus actually means that we're fundamentally disrupted. And now we have the opportunity to create in different ways than we had before.
0: Wow. Yeah. uh, That's a big thing that I've, I guess, thought about on the surface level, but, you know, kind of bring into like, you know, more depth, that was, that was what you were getting into. How leaders are trying to recreate Zoom uh, or recreate that in-person feel in Zoom and how our patterns of human behavior have changed because of uh, the pandemic. Could you, I guess, pick it up from there <laughs> and see what, what, um, what else you're trying to get up?
2: The broader moment of coronavirus and the pandemic and all the disruption that it's caused to me is just a deeper invitation for choice around how we want to be. So, when I set up, you were alluding to the intentional life. And in that book, I talk about a framework for being more intentional, which begins with awareness of why you're acting certain ways you are, the patterns that you have, the conditioning that's driving you, the emotions that are underneath the surface, right? And then moving from awareness to then reflection to trying to figure out what are those things about like how do i understand them more deeply how do i see the places that they're operating in my life then from moving from reflection to alignment where you make choices that are actually consciously aligned with your goals and values instead of operating automatically and then finally move into a place of surrender where you're consciously making choices, but you're also holding those things lightly, knowing that you can't control the world, knowing that you are co-creating your experience with those that of those around you and that with the influences of the universe. And so while you are setting an intention, while you're trying to live in alignment, you're also doing that with a bit of grace and with a bit, a bit of space. And so that framework of thinking about awareness, reflection, alignment, surrender applies to this coronavirus moment too, in which coronavirus and the invitation of being different is bringing awareness to us. It's causing us to reflect on our old patterns and say, why were we doing it that way? Why were we making those assumptions? Why were we designing the meetings that way? It's giving us an opportunity then to step into greater alignment around actually we want more interpersonal connections. So how do we design that in a Zoom meeting? Or wait, the people who are in this meeting and the reason we're having this meeting doesn't even make sense. And if we want to honor a value of transparency, or if we want to honor a value of inclusion, or we want to honor a value of um, excellence, we would design this meeting a different way, sure. and then surrender to see how that thing goes. Because again, we know that we're in an evolutionary process, and we'll have to change again in the future. And so and so, the invitation of coronavirus is to be more intentional, is to bring new bring awareness of old patterns and alignment to new ways of being that we wanted to have whether it's something as big as uh how we are together collectively (laughs) in the course of global pandemic or as small as the tuesday morning meeting and how that's designed
0: wow yeah yeah just one thing into your book um i was listening to the part where you uh you talk about fear and you kind of bring up like uh saying yes to fear and you know there's like mm-hmm. saying yes to the most i mean I wouldn't define it as like the most scary but you know some of the thoughts that i have or anyone can really have is like the worst case scenario just saying yes to that and i don't know that that that's super that was, i found that really invigorating for some reason and and Mm. counterintuitive but useful and I, was, I guess thanks for writing that or, or you know creating that that part um yeah I appreciate like how, that yeah yeah how, how did you realize to do that or like what are you reflecting on that what do you say or how do you feel about what you wrote there now I guess
2: you're talking about the essay and fears as a part of the intentional life which is part uh-huh. of that uh part of that first chapter of the book part of the first Uh, part of the schema I just described around awareness, because becoming more aware is not only becoming aware of your beliefs, but also becoming aware of your conditioned patterns, your emotions, and fears, like you said, as part of that. And often when fears come up, we have this instinctive, natural inclination to say no to them, right? We want to fears come up and we want to avoid them becoming true we want to we want to say no to them we want to squash them we want to avoid them we want to make sure that uh the things we fear don't come to pass and so our overall orientation to fear is typically one of no we are oriented to saying no to fears no i don't want that to happen no i hope that's not true no i don't want to do anything that increases that likelihood of that and the power in shifting that from a no to a yes is actually that the fear stops taking up so much space in our lives. So when we say no to a fear, we put energy against it, right? We block it. We intentionally engage with it, but in a negative way. And therefore we actually give the fear a lot of power because we spend our time and attention trying to avoid the fear. Yeah, you're right. If we say yes to a fear, then we acknowledge its possibility. We say yes, I might be alone for the rest of my life. Yes, uh-huh. I'm, I might not get this job. Yes, I, I will die someday, right? We actually acknowledge the potential of the fear. We say yes to it. And as a result, we don't spend all of our time trying to navigate around it, trying to avoid it, trying to decrease the likelihood it might happen because our orientation towards yes actually dissipates the power of the fear. And so imagine that something is chasing, like a big beastie monster is chasing right. you and you're running away from it. You're running away from it as fast as far as you can because you're saying, no, 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 no big beastie monster <laughs> running away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the beauty is that as soon as you realize that you can simply turn around and look it in the face and say, yeah, how, hi, here I am. Here you are. that that might happen. It might be true. It's almost like you turn around and it, and it just runs right through you or it, it disappears in the face of it, or you realize it's not as scary as you first thought it was.
0: Yeah. Is that you,
2: again, you, you expand to be able to make all of the choices that you want without having these dark corners of your life that you're spending lots of time trying to avoid. That's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a lot here. uh, Um, You know, we talked a lot in this episode, you know, on notion of, you know, reflection, courage, humility, overcoming fear. Uh, You know, a a good cap to this episode is to ask you, uh, you know, if you had to summarize your own personal uh, startup mindset in one to two sentences, you know, maybe doing all of this, (laughs) I mean, I don't know even how to pack it all in, but you personally, you know, if you reflect on on that question, what would be your answer?
2: Yeah, um, my, my personal startup mindset would be one of consciousness and choice. Like take a minute, stop, reflect, see what's really going on and then choose.
1: Wow, that's, that's, that's powerful. Um, another one that is kind of the, the fan favorite question of, of our podcast is, you know, you go back in time, uh, maybe you were in Yale or whatnot, um, you had to give advice to your 20-year-old self to discover your own personal startup mindset. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell her when you go in front of her and 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 give her advice?
2: Yeah. So my advice to my 20-year-old self would be: uh, life is long and learning is iterative. So you can make nearly any choice you want at any given time, and what's important is that you reflect on what you're learning as a result of it and adjusting along the way. I think my 20-year-old self probably found it really important to get things right, really important to be right, really important um, to make each decision effectively and accurately. And I was probably um, too tight, too controlling, and too precious about all of that. Whereas if I was to give myself um, advice from this perspective, it would be, You'll make some good decisions. You'll make some seemingly bad decisions. You can't tell which is which, but the whole point is that you learn from all of them to make a decision, move forward, see what happens, learn from it, incorporate, and evolve to the next thing. I think it would help me probably, maybe I wouldn't have made any different decisions along the way, but I think I would have held them all a bit more lightly and understood that, um, that the failures and the things that felt wrong or bad were really beautiful parts of the journey, and I probably would have embraced them in a different way.
1: No, that's that's amazing. Um, just just basically now thinking of even kind of my life to see that you know the key is to just make a decision, learn, and then iterate. And it's life is a continuous learning process, right? And that's one thing that makes life beautiful
0: yeah meredith i mean this was a uh, really i guess eye-opening or i mean y- unique in the sense that we you know traditionally just uh spoken to people about like how they run a business and things like that but you incorporate like an element of like uh how how to make decisions and like be conscious about it in 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 a very i don't know just uh, like a helpful way helpful
1: (laughs) how we say it enlightening oh my gosh
0: yeah that's that's what he's yeah that's a great way to phrase it well i guess thanks so much for coming on the show and and uh if if listeners want to um read your book or like you know figure out what you're you're up to right now how, how do they do that
2: sure so both of my books are on amazon and also available and on other many other websites so the first is indispensable how to succeed at your first job and beyond and the second is The Intentional Life, Reflections from Conscious Living. Um, you can find both books both books there. You can reach out to me through my website, meredithwibbledcallahan.com. And you can also sign up there for monthly love notes. I send out monthly love notes, uh, which are reflections of this nature on the spiritual, spiritual dimension of everyday and organizational life. Um, and would be happy to be in dialogue with any of them and all of you.